What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest today is Donna Murch, an associate professor of history at Rutgers State University of New Jersey. She's also the New Brunswick chapter president of the Rutgers AAUPAFT, which I will have her define just in a minute. She is the author of Living for the City, Migration, Education, and the Rise of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California. She joins us today to talk about her latest book, Asada Tatni, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives. Thanks so much for joining us, Donna. It's my pleasure. Donna Merch, I know who Asada is, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure most of my listeners do too, given the, the demographics of folks that tune into KPFA. But still, uh, let's start with a brief bio on uh, Mama Asada Shakur. Who was she and what did she contribute to the movement for Black liberation? So Asada Shakur was a Black Panther from New York City. She came from a family that had migrated from the Carolinas. And she was a rank and file party member. Um, One of the reasons that she's so influential influential and well-known today is that she became a member of the Black Liberation Army which was a segment of the Black Panther Party that broke off and continued throughout the 1970s. Her government name is Joanne Chesimard, which is the name that's still used by the New York Times and the New Jersey police. But she became uh, a fugitive from the law when she was accused of shooting and killing a a New Jersey state trooper. And she was arrested several years later, went through multiple trials, was uh, sentenced to prison, and was actually broken out of prison and became a fugitive in Cuba. So she is a true symbol of the Black Liberation Movement. And I think precisely because she was also associated with the Black Liberation Army, with the real campaigns of law and order and criminalization of the movement in the 1970s, but also became free, made, has made her a real symbol of hope and possibility for multiple generations to come. She wrote an autobiography in Cuba in the late 80s called Asada, and I think that that's been the primary site of transmission of her story. It's been read by multiple generation of activists. She matters for many reasons. I think it matters that she's a woman. It matters that she came from New York. The New York party was the the Black Panther uh, party and uh, its many different tendencies really were rooted in local communities. And I'd say the New York chapter, which is the one that Afini Shakur, mother of Tupac Shakur, comes from, was also a deeply Pan-Africanist um, chapter compared to the original founding leadership in Oakland. So I think for those reasons, she's been deeply influential, not only to people of my generation in the 1980s and 1990s, but to a younger generation of Black Lives Matter activists over the last 10 years. Yeah, her biography was certainly a part of my politicization uh, in my early 20s um, and was my pathway to, to learning about who she was and, and, and what she contributed. And, you know, you mentioned that she's um, in, in Cuba and there is a, I believe it's still $2 million bounty on her head. What about Asada Shakur is, remains such a threat to the United States government um, that there are, you know, they have not uh, lost any fervor in their attempts to, to have her captured um, and such a high price um, to, to get her back into the U.S.? Well, I think that, you know, there are many cases of different Black Panther members that people, large numbers of political prisoners who have been incarcerated since the 1960s and 1970s. Matulu Shakur would be another example who was part of the Black Liberation Army and was an acupuncturist who treated, found alternate ways to treat people who were addicted to heroin. So I think that the long-term prosecution of Black Panther Party members has been core to the state. 
bipartisan, Democratic and Republican. And I think a big portion of it is that first, the Panthers openly embraced Marxism. So they were an all black organization that actively sought alliances with Japanese, Chinese, Chicano, uh, white working class, uh, and what they called mother country radicals. So they combined an ethos of black liberation and black power that embodied post-war struggles, but they linked that to a broader movement against U.S. imperialism and openly embraced Marxism. And I think that that combination of ideologies was demonized and was prosecuted because of a fear of communism. So the Panthers, one of the important contexts, I think, for people who have come to the history of Asada and the Panthers over the last 20 years is that the Panthers are very much a product of anti-colonial movements at the height of the Cold War, where the U.S. is involved with a war in Southeast Asia while supporting anti-communist wars all over the country. And the Panthers actively sought alliances with the countries that the U.S. defined as its enemies. And that's highlighted why Asada Shakur would take refuge in Cuba The other piece is that in its early years, the Black Panther Party embraced armed self-defense, which was armed stance against the state, and started with the idea that the Panthers would police the police. They later repudiate uh, the use of armed self-defense in the late 60s and focus on survival programs. But the Black Liberation Army, which was... um, composed of a series of chapters that the party expelled, continued to brace armed struggle. So I think it's a combination of the deep racism and both domestic and international war against anti-colonial movements, anti-communism, and the demonization of armed struggle in the Black liberation movement. I'm actually glad that that you went there, uh, Donna Mertz, because that was uh, going to be my next question. You know, I mean, our movements are you know full of contradictions, of course, and shifting political conditions. Um, but you do talk about you know uh, Asada being an inspiration to you know the activists that are on the ground today. I mean, my favorite hoodie is my Asada taught me hoodie. Um, and when people say that they like it, right, I I, I immediately know what your politics must be. That said. Uh, she was a member of the Black Liberation Army that did believe in armed struggle as a pathway to liberation for our people, which actually is not the ideology of many of the, I'm using the word air quotes, uh, leaders or organizations uh, that are on you know, some of the front lines today. And in fact, any purporting of that as a strategy, um, I've heard mocked, dismissed, and described as revolutionary fantasy. Your thought on that contradiction? Do you see it as a disconnect? Well, I think that... Um, one of the issues is that I'm a historian, and so I'm really interested in understanding why particular kinds of mobilization organizations emerge when they do, and to think about the differences as well as the continuities between eras. And I think that I would say that in many ways, the kind of activisms that the Panthers engaged in in the 60s and 70s is nearly impossible today. I think that the United States has become a much more repressive country. And I'm chastened to say that when we think about the scale of state violence that was leveled against the Panther Party. But what's striking is that, you know, Huey Newton had three capital murder charges for killing a policeman for being for an alleged killing of a policeman in Oakland, but ultimately was released from prison. We have political prisoners from that period, but we also have legal victories But when you think about the United States, 50 plus years from the Panthers founding, the institutionalization of law and order campaigns, the war on terror in particular, the Defense Authorization Act, that this is a much more repressive country. I do think to engage in the ways that the Panthers did in armed struggle today would result in obliteration of movements, unfortunately. So I think that that historical context is very important. That the greater tension that I see with the people that have embraced ASADA is a lived practice of independent movement building and organization building and true anti-capitalist practice. Because I think that social movements, organizing, activism, 
it has to adapt to the conditions of the moment. But I think I'm of, I'm of several minds about this. The part that I see is good about a younger generation of activists embracing Asada is also a way to transmit that history. I didn't learn about the Black Panther Party until I was a graduate student writing a dissertation on it. And that reflects some of where I grew up, Western Pennsylvania, conservative Catholic schools. But it wasn't really until I was a graduate student, not even an undergraduate, that I really researched and began to learn about the history of the Black Panther Party. So any interest in Asada, even though it starts with iconography and with imagery and you know, with aesthetics, is a way to open up a historical conversation into the past to remind and to educate all of us about previous forms of activism. So I see that as a good thing. At the same time, other people have approached me about my book and the title Asada Taught Me and are concerned about the appropriation of Panther icons. But I tend to view this from a, a generous lens because unfortunately the transmission of these histories is very, very difficult. And I would rather start with a conversation with Asada and then think about what we can learn from her history, the history of the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army, and adapt particular tactics to the needs of the current moment. There are so many places I could go with that. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, lessons that may or may not have been transmitted from the time of the Panthers and the BLA to the current movement, right? Like where are we, where are we maybe uh, tripping over some of the same things, particularly I want to, I'm going to want to address in a little bit, um, anti-capitalist ideology and, and practice. Um, folks, you're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. I'm in conversation with Donna Murch about her book, Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives. Well, I was going to start, um, I, I live in Oakland, California, so we, we definitely have to spend some time on the first essay in the book uh, about the Panther Party. You talked about um, how you first became interested in the the party. Um but I'm also, you know, because I live here um, and my my daughter, you know, I raised my child here. Um, we talk about the party and its legacy, you know, all the time. I mean, it's just sort of threaded into the the culture and the narrative and the language of Oakland and the Bay Area. Um, that said, right, as I travel or I talk to other people, I'm I'm repeatedly shocked at how disconnected the rest of the world is from the legacy of the party. Even even some modern day Black organizers. Why do you think this is? You talked about the the importance, but also the difficulty of transmitting this history down through generations. And then what do you see as the potential costs to our current movement if we're not doing that, if we're not utilizing history to inform our organizing today? Yeah, thank you for that question. You know, I really love Oakland and value Oakland. And I moved there in 1994 and lived there from 94 to 2004. And I would never have been able to write the history of the party without having lived there in the way that I did. And so I'll start with that and then talk about why I think the history has been erased. When I was in Oakland in the 90s, the Panthers were a living history. And of course, there were the presence of many Panthers who were involved in all different kinds of organizing efforts. Many of the Panthers, after the party was disbanded, went into other struggles So in Los Angeles, the Crack the CIA coalition that was dealing with the aftermath of Iran-Contra and Contra cocaine and the Gary Webb story, you had people involved in um, the fighting the high infant mortality rate among Black mothers, so dealing with issues of Black women and nativity. You had people involved in ongoing Stop the Violence campaigns against the police and state violence, supporting political prisoners. A whole range of Panthers were lifelong activists, and that activism assumed many forms, including people that had been involved in the health clinics. So it was very much a living history in Oakland that allowed me to learn about that history and to try to contribute to it. I think that The first thing is just the misrepresentation in popular culture. Like it or not, popular culture is the primary way that most people in the United States learn about most things. 
And there were a series of films that were made. You had Mario Van Peebles' Panther that was made. The Unfortunately, the one that I hear most often from undergraduates is Forrest Gump, which is literally um, takes its name from the main character, from the founder of the Ku Klux Klan. And so that has been one of the most potent sources and stereotypes about the Panthers, which is essentially that the Panthers were anti-white, they were black militants, they were almost illiterate, you know, they were villains. And I teach a class on historical methodology at Rutgers through the history of the Panther Party. And I always start the class and have go around and have the students ask what they know about the party. And almost universally, people talk about Forrest Gump and that the party was anti-white. So a lot of this. mm -hmm. Sorry, I I just that 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 is so fascinating to me. And I just just want to point out before you continue. Right. The first Rainbow Coalition, Chairman Fred Hampton, the founder of the Illinois chapter. Right. Black power to black folks, white power to white folks, red power to red folks, yellow power to yellow folks. Um, And this idea of multiracial, multi-country organizing this worldview. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there's so many things about television and other forms of media, but, you know, in mainstream media, so much of what is said is opposite, right? Opposite. And that desire to represent the Panthers as this reflexive anti-white and confusion also between the history of the nation of Islam and the Panthers because of their, you know, love and respect for Malcolm X So I'd say popular culture has been one of the biggest impediments, but then it's combined with that the United States is the great global anti-communist hegemon. And in the post-war years with the FBI and other law enforcement campaigns, the Panthers were an enormous portion of of their domestic repression. You know, the small organization that was composed when it was founded mainly of teenagers and people in their early 20s. At its very largest, it had a maximum of 5,000 members, but enormous state resources were expended in order to attack and tear apart the Panther Party. So I think it's a combination of misrepresentation and demonization in popular culture with law enforcement campaigns that tore apart the party, incarcerated people. And in that process of repression, of course, history is lost. I teach classes that are multiracial, but I would say that Black students also, with exceptions, the people that know the most about the party are usually people who have been educated by their parents or have had alternate, they didn't learn about it in their school, in school. Most of them have learned it, learned about it through family, friends, family, alternate histories. There, there's so much more uh, in in just this first essay, and I, I, I you know, encouraging people to to read the book. Asada taught me and things that I hadn't thought about around the the origin of the party um, as a result of of migration, right? Uh, black flight and the the rise of a black populace here in the city of Oakland. But for the sake of time, we're going to push on because there's so much more to talk about. Y'all, uh, this is Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Donna Murch about her book, Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives. Essay two, or chapter two, um, is called Black Liberation in 1968. In addition to that being the year of your birth, <laughs> I'd like you to talk about... Um, not only significance of that year, right? What are sort of the, the, the some of the major political um, events that that took place? But you also talk about the revisions of that year, two revisions of that year, um, and the history of Black liberation attached to it. Yeah, thank you for that question. So, in some ways, the first two essays of the book are deeply intertwined with each other. The way that I came to learn about the history of the party was coming to become a a graduate student in the history department at UC Berkeley in 19. I came first to the rhetoric department in 1994 and then moved into the history department in 1996. And so that essay, Black Liberation 1968, is really me talking about the period after, the 30 years after 1968. So Berkeley the university and the city became emblematic of a radical Berkeley in the 60s. 
But the history that's lesser known is really the sustained campaign against the movement that one of the things that I argue that helped to produce the Panthers was you have a movement, the largest migration uh, of Black people in history is the second great migration. And on the West Coast, it's even larger because the numbers were so much smaller. So Oakland is 2% Black in 1940, it's 10% Black by 1950, and by 1980, it's majority Black. So significantly larger numbers than we have today after the tech boom has made the city uh, so difficult for working class people to live in. So we've seen a lot of remigration to the South. And that history of migration is core to the emergence of the Black Panther Party. But it combines that with a period of the expansion of higher education. So in California in the 1960s, you had free higher education from community colleges through UC Berkeley. And so the party is this incredible convergence between people migrating out of the South, many of whose parents only had six or seven years. And then you have young people who suddenly have access to high school and to higher education. And the real story of the Panthers is that combination of the convergence between Southern migration and this opening up of higher education. The Panthers first started with a study group at UC Berkeley, and then the people in the Afro-American Association began recruiting at Merritt College, which used to be in West Oakland. And it's out of that study group that Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, the two Panther founders, become politicized. So in the essay, Black Liberation 68, it's about how UC Berkeley, which had been such a site of contestation, that in the years to come, you saw uh, the passing of the Baki decision um, at another UC campus, which was the first major strike against affirmative action. And in the 1990s, you have the passage of the California Civil Rights Initiative, which was authored by John Wu, uh, who was a professor at at Bolt Hall, which is the law school at UC Berkeley, and later author of the Torture Memos from 2004. So a place that had been a real site of mobilization 30 years later actually becomes really important in dismantling the gains and accomplishments of the 1960s and 1970s. So I was telling an unfamiliar history When I was at UC Berkeley, there was a real memory of the 60s. And there's a way in which in the period after the university closed itself off, there were purges, people that didn't get tenure who were involved in the free speech movement. There was a dismantling of the criminology program. And then ultimately, one of the definitive decisions against affirmative action, first the Baki decision, and then later the UC Regents and the California Civil Rights Initiative. So in some ways, this links to our first question about why don't people know the history of the party? So in addition to the repression of the period, it's also really the campaign against not only the party, but the forces that helped to produce the party, which were well-funded higher education that was available to poor and working class people and really helped to transform the country by providing people with tools and power previously unavailable to past generations. That was a lot of a word there. Thank you so much, Donna Murch. We are talking to Ms. Donna Murch about her book, Asada Taught Me State Violence, Racial Capitalism and the Movement for Black Lives. Um, I want to bring us forward uh, in in terms of uh, where we're sitting in the book and turn our attention now to the essay or the chapter, How Race Made the Opioid Crisis. And I would like you to talk about the myth of race in the creation of the opioid crisis, i.e. the blaming of, uh, as you put it, Mexican and Central American migration rather than the criminal behavior of big pharma, particularly companies like Purdue. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing up this essay. This is one of my favorite essays in the book. And I'm currently, (laughs) thank you. I'm currently writing a book called, tentatively titled Capitalism Plus Dope uh, about the the drug, the crack crisis and the war on drugs in Los Angeles. 
So one of the great paradoxes of the 1980s and 1990s, at a time when the American war on drugs is reaching its height. So, you know, the war on drugs has a long history in the United States. It stretches back at least as early as the late 19th century. You could go even further back. But it really does reach its epoch apex, I think, in terms of the total numbers of incarceration and the expansion of all the different state agencies and institutions involved in the war on drugs in the 80s and 90s. And uh, it's not even ironically, because it's actually consistent. At the same time, we're seeing the deregulation of pharmaceutical, that is, licit opioids that created the conditions for the largest drug epidemic we've seen in our history. So what you had is under the Reagan revolution, the prosecution of large numbers of people for marijuana use, possession and sale, the uh, overwhelming prosecution of black people for crack offenses, even though according to the government, the federal government's own data, two thirds of crack users were white, but You have this enormous war on drugs that's being fought. And at the same time, under the Reagan revolution, which was seen as a victory of deregulation and anti-taxation, you see the cutting of funds to the FDA. And uh, with that cutting of funds comes greater power and influence of the pharmaceutical company on the regulatory apparatus. So it's in this period that Pharmaceutical companies are actively trying to make pain the fifth vital sign and to begin a campaign for new marketing of white opioids. Race was so important to this because imagine you're having a massive war on drugs with its own uh, PSAs and core to the Reagan revolution, the threat constantly, this is your brain on drugs. But simultaneously, despite the long, long history of humans understanding that that uh, drugs that are derived from the opium poppy are extremely addictive and will produce physical dependence in all who use it. Simultaneously, this revolution in and dissolving regulation and allowing this marketing of very high dose opioids is taking place and one of the ways that they were able to affect this change was to direct these white opioids and to use advertising campaigns and to frame it in terms of regulators that these were not traditional urban drug users so urban meaning black or brown and that it was going to be marketed only for medical uses to populations that were suburban, comparatively affluent, or rural. So the idea is that somehow, magically, these populations would be immune to drug addiction. So it's my attempt to bring together the war on illicit drugs, which is largely a war against black and brown people, with the deregulation of opioids, that these two things actually fit together and happened at the same time. One of the most shocking things that I found was that Rudolph Giuliani, who (laughs) has done many uh, horrendous things after this portion of the story, we all know his recent history, but he's mayor of New York in 2000, and he's responsible for over 50,000 people in New York City being put in prison for cannabis possession. Two years later, he is the premier lawyer and lobbyist for Purdue Pharma. And he's hired and uses his political connections to assist Purdue, even by the early 2000s, municipalities and counties were aware of this enormous opioid crisis taking place. So they were trying to stop Purdue and get injunctions to stop the selling of OxyContin. And it's really Rudolph Giuliani that's the architect of creating deals in Washington, D.C. that made it possible for Purdue to continue to sell OxyContin for almost a decade more and to avoid prosecution of the senior executives that had instituted this devastating crisis caused it. Right. And just, uh, uh, I'm totally digressing here, but I am going to shout out 
the the series on uh, Hulu by Michael Keaton, Dope Sick, which actually brought my attention to this crisis. Because I'm honest with you, Donna, right? Like when when it hit, I didn't pay very much attention to it, and I. I almost you know a little shame to say it but sort of like well you, you, when crack hit nobody cared but now it's a crisis right and 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 w- w- was very focused on what was happening in in black communities that's something else you mentioned and, and correct me if i if i get this wrong and then i sort of drew a conclusion that you don't say in the book or i, I didn't read it in the book um but like part of the marketing decision was was actually because of the criminalization of black folks and drugs right and and not wanting uh purdue farmer not wanting that to impact their ability to sell and, and and spread the utilization of the drug. And as I was reading, I was like, is it, is it fair to say um, that in a way racism, the fear of marketing to racially stigmatized uh, markets, our folks may have spared our people from that, from the worst, because I'm not saying black folks do not, um, are not caught up in opiates, particularly now, but, but from that initial, sort of wave of the opioid crisis? I would say initially, but the problem is, is that, you know, this set in motion forces that have taken on a life of their own. So now there's much greater control. And I'd say in some cases, even over restriction that, you know, I have an aunt who's a dialysis patient who has a very difficult time being prescribed opioids because now it's gone to the opposite extreme and even licit patients, especially patients of color have difficulty being prescribed any form of opioid. So what this set in motion is you had large numbers of people that became addicted and the initial complexion of this particular wave, because of course there've been multiple waves of opioid licit and illicit in American history, were initially concentrated geographically, especially in Appalachia and white, largely white parts of, I'd say, it's it's been different geographies, but at least much of the reporting was about Ohio, Virginia, parts of Appalachia, rural areas, and then different suburban communities throughout the United States. But now we have a much higher death rate and overdose rate of opioids among black and brown people. So what started out as illicit drug crisis has now become an illicit drug crisis centered in fentanyl use, which is being mixed in many different types of uh, drug cocktails. So I think when we look at the epidemic, because it's constantly changing, I think because of the social determinants of health now and for a number of years, we're actually seeing the opioid crisis impact black and brown communities. We're, we're I, I'm, I'm fast running out of time and I, and I really want to get to um, talking about um, the last chapter um, or essay in the book, but briefly, because uh, I, I, I loved this, uh, will you just touch on um, David Hertzberg and and his assertion that quote there is no real difference between prescription medications and illicit drugs um, that rather it's the social meaning attached to them which has more to do with race class and the differential application of state power. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is really in some ways the most important conclusion of how race makes how race made the opioid crisis is that the criminalization of drug use is often about the demonization of black and brown, and also, of course, a long history of anti-Chinese and anti-Asian sentiment, stretching back to the late 19th century and the Chinese Exclusion Act and the ways that Chinese workers were associated with opium, when in reality, the opening up of these opium markets was a product of an imperial war with England. It's referred to as the opium wars that forced open Chinese markets for opium sale. So opium was often used as a tool of imperialism. And that was true both in the late 19th century and in the Vietnam War, in which the... U.S. allies were actively involved in heroin heroin trafficking, and some of these monies were used to finance anti-communist war as they were in Central America in the 1980s. So the understanding of drugs and the prosecution of illicit drugs has been inseparable 
from racism and racial punishment campaigns, despite the fact that as we see in the opioid crisis, that the United States is the consumer of 80% of the world's opioids. So in scale and depth, it's clear that the licit opioid crisis was much larger. And we haven't seen a single pharmaceutical executive sent to jail. You're listening to Law and Disorder Family. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Donna Murch about her book, Asada Taught Me State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives. The last chapter or essay in the book uh, is The Movement for Black Lives, A Retrospective Look from 2021. And um, I'm going to say a couple of things and, and, and read a paragraph from the book and then ask you to respond. Um, when, you know, at the beginning of the book, I wasn't sure if when you said the movement for black lives, you were talking about the organization and for BL, uh, or the literal movement, right. Which is comprised of many orgs and organizers who may or may not identify, um, as members of MB4L or, or black lives matter. Um, I work closely with both orgs and, and, and appreciate a lot of the work that they do, but then, and then, um, and, and I just, I, I want to read it because I really appreciate it. But on page 138, you say, uh, initially, Black Lives Matter was only thought of as a hashtag, but as corporate media increasingly reported all forms of Black protests as, as Black Lives Matter, the line between many different regional and ideological tendencies became blurred. Participants varied from the tight-knit structure of BYP 100 to the mass spontaneous demonstrations in Ferguson, Missouri, Baltimore, Maryland, Charlotte, North Carolina, Oakland, California, and many other locales. While the mainstream press often reported these many and varied actions as Black Lives Matter protest, in truth, they represented distinct tendencies with different social and geographical profiles. Why is this important? I think it's critically important, but I want to hear you talk about why you spent time uh, to talk about that. Yeah, thank you for that. And, you know, I have to say that comes from me having visited and participated so yeah, I was living in New York City at the time, so I participated in as many of the protests as I could. And I also, my family is from St. Louis, my whole extended family on my mother's side. So when Ferguson jumped off, I immediately went to St. Louis. In fact, I was just in St. Louis this past month, and that was a really sobering experience, which I'll say some more about. Um, and I, you know, the the media's coverage in many ways, the media, what I was struck by, including by some of the reporters who I really like, where you saw a learning curve take place during this movement. But, you know, it's a problem with not knowing the history of Black movements, that, you know, Black politics has always had many tendencies. We've had civil rights, we've had Black power, we have a tradition of Black radicalism and Black Marxism. And this all can't be understood through a singular lens, right? I think that the flattening of Blackness is one of the core issues, be it the mainstream media or popular culture. So I think that that lack of knowledge of Black history meant that a single lens could be used. And there was a time where the term Black Lives Matter wasn't being used, at the t- in the I'd say like 2012 through about 2014, I was using this unwieldy term, the anti-state sanctioned violence movement. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Because that's how I saw it. You yeah, know? No. Yeah. Um, but that changed over time. And, you know, it started with the mainstream media. And then it happened, I'd say, with many participants themselves. There was a certain point I had an exchange with Barbara Ransby at one of the socialism conferences in Chicago about what to call this movement. And I think that there came a moment where we really decided that this was the best lens. It was the most inclusive lens. But again, the way that history unfolds, I think it's important to understand they were distinct. And the place that I was most aware of this, because also my family is from St. Louis, and I ended up writing a dissertation that became my first book, Living for the City, about the Black Panther Party. But the first, my first idea for a dissertation is I wanted to write one of Black St. Louis, because that's where my family is from. And I had real like complex feelings when I went to the Ferguson protests and then to Ferguson October, because you had a range of different kinds of people there. You had formerly incarcerated people. You had the local communities who really kept that struggle alive 
This part is important to know. One of the reasons that we know Ferguson's name is because of the sustained organizing. And I talk about this in my essay, Ferguson's Inheritance. It was written big portions of it while I was on the ground in Ferguson and going back and staying with my family and observing it over the course of two years. So they counted the first day as day one, day two. And you had ordinary people that really created structures in order to maintain protest outside the police station in this area of Ferguson uh, for two years. And that was distinct from the people that came from outside. And I remember thinking about the complexity of what this would mean when you're in a Rust Belt city, cash poor, resource poor, St. Louis is an incredibly brutal, brutal place. The police drive around in pickup trucks in North County. It's the only place I've seen police who have, let's say, you know, PD vehicles that are white pickup trucks. And so, you know, there's an enormous disparity in resources and also The world for a few minutes was watching in St. Louis and people that came in from different parts of Black Lives Matter, they rooted themselves in that struggle in Ferguson, but they were also distinct from it. And I really felt at the time, I was like, this is going to be complicated how it will play itself out. I think that was, mm -hmm. excuse me, I I think it was, you know, brilliant foresight on your part. And I'm I'm always going to bring it back to the town that I, that, that I rep. Um, but just even more broadly, if we look at nationally, some of the issues that uh, I'll just say BLM right faced in terms of rifts that were created, um, some created by mainstream media, <laughs> for sure, is that folks felt erased a little bit, right? Folks that have been doing the work. I mean, I'll, I'll go back to 2000, and I, I consider this current iteration uh, of struggle initiating with what happened here on the streets in Oakland, uh, which was a two-year protracted struggle. Um, and, and I, I really think that, that the way that mainstream media covered, right, the explosion that happened in 2014, 2015, uh, going into a little bit of 2016, um, was in part because of how these narratives were, were told in the media. And Donna, I'm, I'm sorry, this is such a long-winded question. Um, but I think that also goes to the point of, you say, uh, quote, one of the biggest issues facing the movement for Black lives is continuing to nurture the vibrancy of militant grassroots organizing efforts rooted in prison abolition while its most visible icons engage the elite world of corporate media, philanthropy, and electoral politics. Yeah, well, this is the core issue. And it's an issue in every period of struggle, how you build coalitions. Movements are things that knit together different cities and different regions and also different kinds of political tendencies. So these kinds of tensions and contradictions exist in every period of political struggle and political movement. But I do think, and I'll start with just an anecdote about having just been in Ferguson. So I went to visit my family a month ago before the floods, and my uncle lives in Florissant, just five minutes from where Michael Brown was killed. And one of the first places I wanted to go was to that place, you know, that center of struggle in Canfield Green. First, Canfield Green has been sold and bought by a new owner and is now called, ironically, Pleasant View. And I have pictures of this from 2014, but the reason Canfield Green was called that is that it was a private housing complex where a lot of people also had been placed who were being pushed out of the city. That some of this history is that there's redevelopment and gentrification going on in North St. Louis. And so if you're receiving housing vouchers, they often were given to you in North County. And North County has become solidly Black. I was in the Walmart in Florissant and I saw no white people. So it's a deeply, St. Louis is a deeply and profoundly segregated place. And so Canfield Green was actually this very, very nice housing complex, but it was covered with these like beautiful old growth trees. And during the Ferguson protests, the police came in and they cut down the trees in order to get better aerial view. So when I went to Pleasant View, it's completely deforested. And you know, just like this hot sun baking down. And the only way that you would know, because there was not a single memorial, a single marker, 
nothing. It has been utterly erased that this was such a central site of struggle. The only way that you would know if you looked at pictures before and after is the absence of trees. And to me, that is allegory and metaphor for what I was talking about in 2014. This is what I feared, that the resources and that attention, how we would continue to root that in sites of struggle to make sure that resources are shared for long-term organizing. And I was really disheartened to find so little memorialization, building of new institutions that were visible, ways to mark the importance of this site of struggle. All right. I'm now over time, but I have to ask you one more question. I, I, I will just say also, you said the absence of trees, and I, I thought about the absence of life, the absence of breath, right? The absence of, of sustenance. And um, collective punishment. Yeah. You know, the effects of collective yes. punishment. People are still living there with all the memory of all the things that happened without the things that provided, you know, protection and shade. That made me tear up a little bit. Um, uh, <clears throat> uh, while this is my this is my last question, though, I, I have so many more down on this sheet for you. Um, but hopefully, we will have an opportunity to to chat again at some point. It is often the men who are lifted up when we think about the history of the Black Panther Party. Um, but if you're a student of that time, you know that thousands of Black women were, were a, the driving force behind the engine. What opportunities does the explicit and very visible Black female leadership of today's movement afford us? That's part one. And then secondarily, you talked about the attacks on the party. And I am, I, I am daily sitting with the way in which Black women are being eviscerated um, in the public narrative while putting their lives on the line for the liberation of our people? Yeah, thank you for that question. I mean, Black women have been so central to this movement and to all of our movements. And as someone who wrote a book on the history of the Black Panther Party, seeing the sustained struggle in the movement for Black lives, Black Lives Matter, and the mass urban uprisings that we've seen over the last decade, it made me think about how we need to revisit even those earlier periods of those earlier decades to always center Black women's leadership. But one of the historical differences is that not only the rank and file of organizations and the core organizers, which was certainly true in the civil rights movement, it was true in the Panthers, but the heads of the organizations are Black women. And so I think that that was a core defining piece and the use as BYP 100 articulated with such power, the use of a queer Black feminist lens. So the hearkening back to the Cumbahee River Collective, to Audre Lorde, and to thinking about the central place, particularly of Black lesbians and queer people, and how they define and understand struggle. So while they look back to Asada, I think there's also a history of Black queer organizing that's absolutely central to this, and that it provided a lot of the force and the inertia for the movement for Black lives. I would also hold up Kathy Cohen and Barbara Ransby. And this is a this is a part of the story that links back to the very first essay that I tell the histories of three particular groups. So the Dream Defenders, who are one of the big reasons that we know Trayvon Martin's name, BYP 100 in Chicago, and then the founders of the Black Lives Matter Network. So for us to have so to think about the local versus the national, and then I have a whole essay also on Ferguson in the book, Historicizing Ferguson. But I think that Barbara Ransby and Kathy Cohen, in many ways, they played the role that Ella Baker did for the civil rights movement. They were both they are both university professors, one at the University of Chicago, the other at University of Illinois, uh, Chicago. 
And they use the resources of the university in order to create convenings for young people to come together and to organize. So this is a different kind of leadership. It's not a leadership of assuming the podium and the person who's interviewed in the newspaper. It's the collective vision of using the resources that you have to enable the organizing of young people who are so central to leading movements. So that piece is also important. So it's not only the heads of organizations and particular activists, but it's also the people that created the infrastructure that allowed for the emergence of new groups. A quick shout out to all the, the frontline warriors and soldiers whose names we don't know that are putting their lives on the line every day for the, the liberation of all of us. Um, all right, family, you have been listening to Law and Disorder. We're going to wrap up now. I'm your host, Cap Brooks. Our guest today has been Donna Merch, an associate professor of history at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, who is also the New Brunswick chapter president of the Rutgers AAUP-AFT. She is the author of Living for the City, Migration, Education, and the Rise of the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California. Donna, first of all, can you please AAUP-AFT, what does that acronym mean? And then if people, um, as I imagine they will, want to find you on the socials to follow your work and efforts, where should they go? Thank you. So, the Rutgers AUP-AFT is our faculty grad union. So AUP stands for the American Association of University Professors and AFT for the American Federation of Teachers. And we are a left industrial union who's involved in a coalition with all the people that work in the university from uh, adjunct professors to custodial staff to dining, work, dining hall workers uh, to all the people that make the university possible. So that's, uh, we have a freedom school that's called the Rutgers Freedom School. If you type that into YouTube, you'll find it. And you can reach me on Facebook under my full name, Donna Merch, and under Twitter at Merchnik, M-U-R-C-H-N-I-K. Donna Merch, thank you so much for this conversation, for this book, for your work, and for joining us today on Law and Disorder. It was truly my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Rask and the Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>